Radio Bio is adhering to COVID-19 shelter-in-place orders, and we are committed to producing fun and educational podcasts for your enjoyment. Please excuse the difference in the audio quality of our post-production while we use online tools to safely work from home. We appreciate you tuning in. Humans might be the world's greatest evolutionary force. From pollution to deforestation, human-induced changes have a huge impact on the environment around us. But how are animals adapting to the changes in their environments? This week on Radio Bio, we talk with Dr. Rachel Bay from the University of California, Davis, about her work investigating evolutionary genomics in an ever-changing world. Don't know much biology. Hello and welcome to Radio Bio. I'm your host, Lily Pennington. And I'm Yumari Vasquez. Today we have with us Rachel Bay, an assistant professor from the Evolution and Ecology Department at UC Davis. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So can you we start by you telling us a little bit about what you do? Sure. Um, so I'm an evolutionary biologist who's really interested in how humans alter their environments and how that in turn might alter the evolutionary trajectories of different plants and animals. So a lot of our work right now focuses on climate change. So uh, emissions that are created by humans are altering climate patterns, including temperature and precipitation. And in the ocean, we have acidification. And that might affect the evolutionary trajectories of the different organisms that live there. A lot of our work is based on using genomics to answer these questions. So we look for different genes that might help or hurt populations in the future. And we try to use that information to project the response to climate change overall. So what organisms are you using to study this? We actually use a lot of different <laughs> organisms in my lab. I kind of like to collect different systems, and I really like to learn about new systems. So that's a really fun part of my job. Um, so for example, right now, we have some work going on in coral reefs. Uh, we have some work on migratory birds, and we have some work on eelgrass. Eelgrass. Yeah. Oh, I've never heard of that. <laughs> uh, well, it's really common on your coast here, but I know we're a little bit far from the coast, so maybe you haven't heard of eelgrass. Um, it's actually a flowering plant, although it doesn't really create beautiful flowers. It is an angiosperm. And they're uh, really productive ecosystems. There's been a lot of news around lately about how eel grasses might sort of buffer certain ecosystems from ocean acidification. Um, and they're an often restored ecosystem as well. Oh, so, so you study like from grasses to corals to birds. Are you taking like similar data from these different systems? Yeah, so my, my training is actually in computational genomics. So on some level, the DNA looks the same when it gets <laughs> to me, although I really do like to delve into the natural history of the different organisms. Um, so our, our basic approach is to use genetics and genomics to do these genome scans looking for genes under selection in different systems. Um, some systems we're more experimental with than others. So for example, in corals, we do a lot of physiological and ecological experiments. We move corals around to see how they function in different places. We heat corals up to see what happens when we do that. Um, 
in birds, we're much less experimental for obvious reasons. Um, so we do some basic measures of things like morphology, but mostly we just look at their genomes. So there's varying degrees of experimentation depending on the system. A genome is the complete set of DNA of an organism. Scientists take samples from organisms and sequence the DNA, which is made up of four base pairs, adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. As Dr. Bay says, the sequences look the same since they are made of the same four base pairs. But the pattern of these base pairs and the genes they translate into are unique to each species and can even be different among individuals of the same species. So in some ways, genomes all look the same because they're made up of A's, T's, G's, and C's. But the variation in genomes between species and between individuals of the same species can shed light on the different responses we see to climate change. So with evolution, I feel like a lot of times when you think of evolution, you're thinking of, well, here you have like this weird little thing that's growing in a pond, and then like in a million years, it'll be a person <laughs> or something. Sure. <laughs> So how you're moving, you're doing like experiments to test evolution, but can you really see evolution happen so quickly? Yeah. So I think that's, that's one of the really cool things that's come out of evolutionary biology as a field sort of recently is this, um, this thought that evolution doesn't have to happen over millions of years. It can actually happen quite quickly. We can see contemporary evolution on the scale of an individual lifetime. So we've always sort of known this. You think about uh, more like viral or medical fields, you see antibiotic resistance develop, that's evolution. But we can also see this in longer lived organisms. And that's because there's a lot of genetic variation in populations now. So we might, for example, see corals that have have one gene that helps them survive certain heat wave events and corals that don't have that gene. And maybe a heat wave comes, event comes through and a bunch of corals that don't have the right gene die and the others reproduce. That's evolution in action. So that's the kind of processes that we really like to study. And so for organisms that you don't have uh, data for right now, like the birds, how would you get data over time for evolution? Yeah, so birds are really cool because people have been looking at them and collecting them for centuries now. So one of the projects I'm really excited about that we're starting in the lab right now is um, actually going back into museums and looking at historical specimens. So we might have some idea of how genetic variation changes over environmental gradients. So for example, in the east coast of the US during the summer, it's much wetter than here. So birds might have certain genes to help them deal with that variation in climate across space. But that doesn't really tell us anything about climate change. Um, we might make hypotheses based on those differences, but we don't know that those genes are actually going to change over time. Um, but we can tell based with museum specimens whether they have changed over time. So we're now genotyping birds from 50 years ago and from 100 years ago to see if we see changes in those genes that we think sh we should. So for those of people who don't really know how hard it is to get DNA from museum specimens. It's really hard. Would like, yeah. Would you like to talk about it a little bit? Uh, do I want to talk about it? Uh, um, it is really difficult to get DNA from ancient specimens. Um, we 
started on this project thinking that it would be super simple. There are many birds in museums. We'll just like take a little toe pad or a little piece of skin and extract DNA like we always do. And we're, you know, about two years into the project now and we finally have our first data. So it's been a lot of troubleshooting extracting DNA, a lot of troubleshooting the sequencing process, a lot of trying very hard not to contaminate anything, but I think we finally got something that at least kind of works. <laughs> So with birds specifically, I feel like when I think of climate change in birds, I think of like a change in migratory patterns. Mm -hmm. But you work on sort of almost like an abstract level because you're looking at how DNA is changing. So how does like the DNA changing translate to what's actually happening in bird populations? Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the things that I often think about is the fact that there are connections between DNA and the environment, and those are mediated by traits of some kind. Mm -hmm. So for the analysis that we do where we just do straight up associations between DNA and the environment, we're ignoring the traits, or we don't know what those traits are. Um, we are now trying to step back and try to understand some of those traits. So in a previous paper, we looked at correlations between DNA in yellow warblers and climate, and we found strong connections between precipitation patterns on the breeding ground and uh, the genetics of the different populations. Um, but we didn't really know why that was happening. So is it like phenology? Are they migrating at different times? Is it some sort of morphology? So do they take advantage of different resources? So now we're going back into the field and trying to catch different birds and measure different aspects of their both morphology and physiology and try to make those links. So do you see climate change affecting DNA as like a big factor or is it something that kind of happens and then it starts affecting other things? So climate change affects DNA through its effect on traits, okay. right? So um, for example, birds or yellow warblers that live in drier places have uh, shorter bills. I don't really know why that is, but maybe they eat different things in drier places. And so as climate change happens, when regions get either drier or wetter, then birds will have to evolve genes that allow them to have longer or shorter bills. Um, so if they have that variation to do that, if they have the genetic capacity to do that, they will in order to keep up with their environment. But the problem happens when they don't have the standing genetic variation to keep up with climate change. So you can see these in birds, but what about corals? So with corals, it's really interesting because the main trait we're looking at is thermal tolerance. We actually know the trait in corals because we've seen the results of corals that don't have that thermal tolerance. We've seen like the most severe bleaching events since 2000. Uh, starting in 2015, we had these really severe global bleaching events um, three years in a row, and we saw about two thirds of corals die globally. Um, so we know the trait we're looking at, it's thermal tolerance. Um, when we try to look in the genome and, and find out which genes are responsible th for thermal tolerance, it turns out a lot of different genes are connected to thermal tolerance. So it's not so straightforward. It takes like, changes at a lot of different genes in order to adapt uh, to these increases in ocean temperature or evolve uh, increased thermal tolerance. But we can start to make some of those connections. And I think understanding the genetic basis will help us 
predict future adaptation or lack thereof. So when you're taking these measurements from, or when you're looking at DNA um, over time, how do you know for sure that evolution has happened? Right. So what we look for is changes in the frequencies of certain genetic variants. So it's a little bit tricky. So uh, allele frequencies can change or genetic variant frequencies can change due to chance alone, or maybe we just sample different individuals. But we try to look for consistent changes in frequencies across maybe multiple experiments or multiple locations to tell us that there's some actual directional change that has to do with adaptation. And, and so when you like see these changes, you're hoping to eventually be able to predict further change right but like what are the implications of being able to predict evolution yeah so one thing that we did was to take what we thought were the genes involved in thermal tolerance and then to measure them in a population and then use the climate change scenarios so the IPCC gives us these different climate change scenarios and try to predict the persistence or extinction of that population in the future. The IPCC is shorthand for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The IPCC aims to provide policymakers with regular scientific assessments on climate change, including options to mitigate and predict the extent of climate change impacts. The IPCC has different climate change scenarios based on the rate of emissions. For instance, there is a scenario that predicts what the extent of climate change would be if we immediately stopped all emissions, and another for if we continue our current rate. Dr. Bay uses these different scenarios in her research. Um, I think that that can... That, I think that model alone can inform managers, for example, about what to expect in their ecosystem. But the other thing that we did, that, which was kind of cool, was to look at the effects of assisted migration on the persistence of that population. So one sort of uh, trendy management strategy in coral right now is what happens if we breed thermally tolerant corals and put them out into the ecosystem? Will that then save the coral reef in the future? And when we have these models, we can actually do that in the computer. So we can test whether that could be a viable management strategy. And so we found that if you put enough corals in that ecosystem, you could actually save the population due to adaptation. So you're telling us to breed corals and move them. <laughs> <laughs> I am not telling you to do that. Um, I am telling you that some people are doing that. Um, and if you do that on a large enough scale, it could be effective. Uh, the, the scale that we found to be effective, at least in our models, was quite large. So it would be a sort of huge effort to do. And I'm not sure if that's feasible on a global scale, but it could be feasible on a very local scale. I mean, that's amazing because a lot of organisms just kind of go extinct because you don't have the chance to do that. Yeah, and I think people are thinking, I mean, especially when you think about corals, which are such a like fundamental component of that ecosystem, and it's an ecosystem that a lot of people rely on, people are think of thinking of really creative ways to try to save them. This might be like a risky question. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so um, do you think that kind of, 
it's almost like we're manufacturing ecosystems. <laughs> Do you think that's like the only way to deal with how quickly climate change oh. is happening? I I think the only way to deal with how quickly climate change is happening is to decrease emissions. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't actually think that manufacturing organisms with particular genetic composition large scale is a sustainable way to deal with it. I like it. <laughs> That's a good answer. So, uh, so you mostly study like climate change as like a human induced mm -hmm. change in the environment, but ha do you also study other like changes that we've done? Yeah. So the, the other thing, most of my work is on climate change. The other thing I've looked at is um, in hybridization between native and invasive species, so or introduced species rather. So we've done a lot of moving species around, um, and particularly we do that um, when we want a species to be a place where it is not. So that's a little cryptic. Um, <laughs> the The system that I looked at was rainbow trout. So rainbow trout, if if you haven't looked into the history of rainbow trout, it's totally crazy. So apparently rainbow trout are really fun to fish. I don't fish, but apparently that they are. Um, and back in the early 1900s, we decided we want them to fish. We want them everywhere we want to fish. And so we're going to put them everywhere. And that includes dropping them out of plains into alpine lakes, uh, putting them on trains across the country, hiking them in in buckets to like remote areas. So rainbow trout are everywhere now. And there are a lot of species of native trout, and it turns out they hybridize with rainbow trout. And so one of the studies that we did was to look at the dynamics of that hybridization and to see whether some genes that went from rainbow trout into the native trout actually helped out the native trout. By and large, we think hybridization is bad. So we think that we know that hybrids are less fit than the parental species. Um, but this hybridization has been going on for a long time. So we think, you know, these genes have had the time to, like, break up in the hybrid populations. And maybe certain genes are actually adaptive to the native trout populations. And we found some evidence that that happened. And the really cool thing is because of all these populations are separated, so different lakes are not connected to each other, um, you have different water sheds, we could see if this was sort of a repeatable phenomenon. So we found the same genes that seem to be adaptive in multiple different watersheds. Um, so for managers, that becomes tricky. So by and large, it's been the wisdom that we don't want hybrids. Um, we should try to get hybrids out of our waterways. And our paper, I think, suggested that it was much more complicated, and it depended on which particular genes you were looking at, whether hybridization was good or bad. How do you find genes that are under selection? Yeah, so all we do is we, we look for a genetic variant from the introduced species, and we look at how common it is in the native species. So the idea is that if it's really common and it's become really common in multiple different places, it's probably under selection to increase. Why would, I'm not sure. So, okay, so <laughs> you, so an increase in genetic variation or genetic variation is something that we want. 
<laughs> Why would hybridization be bad when it's like bringing new? Yeah, things? that's a good question. So um, traditionally in conservation genetics, we do think that genetic variation writ large is a good thing. Um, but species have incompatibilities. There are, reason we, there are reasons that we have species in the first place. So when you hybridize two species, um, their offspring might not be as well off as either of the species independently, and you might be at risk of losing some species. Hybridization is the process of breeding two different species in order to form a hybrid, like how a tiger and a lion mate to produce a liger, or how a horse and a donkey mate to produce a mule. The two mating species are related enough to result in offspring, but because they have different chromosomes, the offspring will often be infertile, unable to produce sex cells like eggs or sperm. So it seems like there are a lot of like broad implications for the work that you do. What would you say is like a study or a result that you're most proud of? Oh, that's a good question. I think that showing that there is genetic variation that can connect climate to population declines um, is probably one of the most powerful results we've had. And that's because it then brings that study out of just sort of the evolutionary literature and brings it into something that matters more for people generally, or people that love birds anyway. <laughs> I feel like sequencing and like genome s studies are so, I don't know, they're just really kind of like abstract and sure. kind of like hard to conceptualize. But like, what's something that you wish people knew about like genome? Oh, like it's something that I wish people knew about genome sequencing. Um, hmm. Don't do it at home. <laughs> well, I'm in. You can do it at home if you want. 23 and me. Yeah, I did my 23andMe. It was really interesting. Um, I guess I feel like the way that uh, genome sequencing is often covered in the media, it makes it look like we find genes that are entirely predictive of certain traits. So using 23andMe, for example, they find the gene that tells you whether or not you smell asparagus when you pee. Um, but that that's not 100% effective. And for most of these studies, that's true. So we don't know all of the genes that are predicting any particular trait. Each gene that we find is just a small effect. And I, I think that's important to keep in mind. Um, more and more, like, personal genomic sequencing is becoming uh, trendy, and it is certainly very interesting, um, but I think interpreting those results with caution is important. And when we see, like, kind of like sequencing results with um, the whole uh, D'Angelo case, I don't remember, the Golden State Killer, <laughs> and how he was caught with like his family family DNA. Do mm -hmm. you th think we can kind of do the same thing with insects? Or not, sorry, not insects. Can we do the same thing with organisms? We kind of see like what family <laughs> they're from or where they're coming from, if they're related. Yeah, I, I think that more and more we will be able to do that. I mean, we're already sort of doing this with 
like in our migratory bird populations, we can pinpoint a bird that we pick up on the wintering range. We can identify where it was born within like a couple hundred kilometers at this point. Um, so the technology to do these things um, in animals as well as humans is becoming better and better every day. I think that's really exciting, but as we've seen with some of the human cases, we need to be a bit careful about it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was great. Yeah, I think we learned a lot about evolution. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Evolution doesn't have to happen over thousands of years, and in fact, we can observe it in real time, year to year. As climate continues to change, we will either see organisms adapt to these changes or go extinct. Dr. Bay's work can help us to understand which outcome is more likely, which is pretty cool, but we really should curb greenhouse gas emissions, right? Anyway, this is Radio Bio, signing off. This episode of Radio Bio was produced by Julia Alvarez. The interviewers were Yumari Vasquez and Lily Pennington. The editor was Lily Pennington. Artwork was done by Laura Van Vraken.